0: Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're talking with two guys who know their way around a kitchen. Rick Mahan and Patrick Mulvaney are Sacramento's top chefs. Their restaurants, The Waterboy and Mulvaney's B&L, have set the bar for fine dining in Sacramento over the past two decades, and they're still atop the list of places worth opening up your wallet for a memorable meal. When they're not cooking, they're still doing plenty to promote good food, boost farm-to-fork efforts, and improve Sacramento's dining scene. Mahan is a big supporter of the Food Literacy Center, and Mulvaney is getting national attention for his efforts to tackle the mental health crisis in the restaurant industry. We're at Antiquity Midtown for a great conversation with these two seasoned veterans of the city's ever-changing, often challenging restaurant scene. Listen in as we talk with Rick Mahan and Patrick Mulvaney about Michelin stars, minimum wage hikes, mental health issues, farmers markets, and other things that are shaping their menus today.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson, I'm executive director of California Groundbreakers here in Sacramento. Um, We are a civic engagement organization that puts on events like this, talking with innovative groundbreakers who are doing very cool things in California. And everything and anything including the arts, uh, food, ag, education, politics, policy, you name it, we try to cover it. uh, Because there's so much going on here in the state. And tonight we're holding one of our what we call groundbreaker Q&A interviews in which we talk with some of Sacramento's mightiest movers and shakers, people who are bringing changes, making waves, and putting California's capital on the map in bold font. Uh, Tonight we're talking about chefs, To me, it seems like chefs these days are rock stars uh, in California and definitely here in Sacramento. I think up here we've got like the Lennon McCartney, uh, the capital city's (laughs) culinary scene. Um, Maybe a Ringo, I'm not sure, we'll find out. Uh, But what I do know uh, is that Rick Mann, am I saying it right, Rick Mann? Mayhan, thank you, and Patrick Mulvaney are two people who have really raised the bar for fine dining in Sacramento. Uh, Rick opened up the Waterboy in 1996, I believe, and Patrick, uh, a decade later, Mulvaney, is it B&L or Building and Loan? B&L, I should have checked all this before I started talking, in 2006. And those restaurants are still at the top of the list, I think, of fine dining for all of us here in the room. Uh, and now that we have a Michelin Guide coming out, I think in June, I know a few people are taking bets to see where you're going to fall on that list and how high you will chart, but most likely it will be pretty high. Uh, Also, chefs these days have powerful voices outside the kitchen, and they can use their status to make change and and be a force for good. So when these two men aren't cooking, they are still doing plenty of things. They're boosting our farm-to-fork efforts here in Sacramento, um, boosting food literacy, helping charitable organizations of all types, mentoring aspiring chefs and people who want to work in the restaurant industry, and very recently tackling the mental health crisis and issues that are in the restaurant industry today. So we're going to talk with Rick and Patrick about a whole variety of things, farm to fork, fine dining, uh, what's it like to run a restaurant in Sacramento and in California, Michelin stars, mental health, all these things that revolve around food and serving it up to people like us in the room. I do want to give a few special thanks to people who helped put this event together. Um, It wasn't all me. So I want to give special thanks to, first of all, the hosts, I call them our hosts. Uh, They run the event venue here, Antiquity Midtown, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose, for always hosting our events here and being very gracious. Thank you both. A few people who also helped put this event together got us up all here on stage. Andrew Wilson, thank you very much. Chelsea Elsa, Elsa, sir I'm sorry if I'm botching your last name. I know you didn't want me to say your name, but I had to say thank you Chelsea and Sarah Gonzalez. Thank you three for helping put this event together. And for bringing the food also. Uh, our vault, my always trustworthy uh, volunteers and board member, Nicole Grant, who is checking everyone in, and Rodrigo Ramirez, who's been serving up uh, the cocktails for you at the bar. Uh, my right-hand people, thank you very much. Um, Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio, who's recording the audio for us and putting together a podcast, which will be up online within a week. Thank you, Caleb. Um, of course, the panelists, Busy Ben, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for coming here tonight. So, uh, I wanted to. I always have the panelists introduce themselves because you know yourself best. Obviously, besides your name, your current role, I always like to ask a personal question. Obviously, it's going to be about food. But I notice, uh, you know, with a change of season, sometimes you're starting to crave something particular um, because you haven't had it in a while and you really want it now. So I guess for a little personal note, uh, I wanted to ask each of you about a particular food you're really craving these days. Um, and or a particular food you're playing around with or testing right now to see whether it's menu worthy and you're gonna put it on the menu for the rest of us to eat. I'm gonna start with a gentleman on my left.
2: See if I can do this right. Can you all hear well? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm Patrick Mulvaney. Um, (laughs) um, Thanks. Uh, No, it's really nice to be here. Thanks for showing up. you know, springtime, we love spring. I love all the different seasons. I know it sounds almost cliche, but um, I, spring is great. So fava beans and peas are showing up and little carrots are awesome. And um, we're changing the menu on Thursdays. So we're right in the middle of, uh, you know, testing all that stuff out. So that's, that's what I'm looking forward to.
1: And who are you? Oh, I am Rick
2: Mahan. <laughs> I have a couple restaurants in town, one the Waterboy and one uh, One Speed.
3: Well, thank you very much. I am not Rick Mahan. I'm <laughs> Patrick Mulvaney. My wife and daughter and I own the B&L over on 19th Street.
0: <clears throat>
3: and I love all food, right? It's always exciting to see whatever, whatever is in there and just think about it. Like Rick said, it's spring. Love asparagus and fiddleheads and peas and carrots and using the tops to make pasta so it's green and figuring out how to fuck with your food, right? <laughs> Do you have the timer on when I said fuck the first time? And then um and then what I'm mostly excited about is uh last night we had some friends bring a wild boar from Mount Diablo. It's about fifty pounds and out on the smoker with a little bit of uh vinegar and whole grain mustard uh uh base that was just delicious. Right. So I think the pig grew up eating ramps, but it was really tasty.
1: That sounds that sounds really good. All right. Um all right, so I usually I wanted to go kind of through the uh the timeline from, from start to where you are now. But to me, uh, I figure a memory of food f- for you may be very poignant because you, you, you're working in food today. So I was wondering for each of you, you know, what's your first memory of food, cooking it, that made you think, you know, I could really get into this. Food has a thing for me that maybe the rest of us may not have had that. So Rick, how about you? What's your first memory of food or cooking food?
2: Well, I love food. I've always been hungry, it seems like. So, and my mom, uh, bless her heart, she could do so many things, but cooking wasn't uh, one of them. And she, no, There was no woman better suited for the space age to come, and like, when Tang started showing up and space food sticks, it was like, she was like, yeah. I'm, um, my dad was a cook in the family, and so my dad used to do the Sunday meal every uh, Sunday. And it was, you know, when we got to be preteens and teens, that, that was the only requirement, is that we had to be at the house 2 o'clock on Sunday, and my grandparents would come over. But my dad would start doing his mise en place on Friday. You know, he'd stop by the winery and pick up his wine, and he'd pick up food on Saturday morning, he'd do prep all Saturday, and then um, he'd have dinner. So that's, I ate kidneys when I was 11, and I was in heaven. I mean, it really, it was, it was so great. And... Um, and then my dad was also a cook um, in the military, cooked in high school, cooked in college, was a cook in the Army. And um, he was my original inspiration for this. And um, that's when I decided, man, I, I could do this. I, food's good. Yeah. I, I haven't got tired of it yet. So uh, good.
1: And you grew up here in Sacramento, is that right?
2: Yeah, Carmichael. Um, yep.
1: Carmichael. What high school?
2: Uh, my high school is now uh, not a high school any longer. It's, um, um, it's an event center, it's La Sierra High School.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you're
1: Patrick, what about you?
3: So, Rick and I uh, shared the same mother from a different mother. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> sheer act of desperation to uh, make it out how to cook. I, I, uh, but I, when I got out of college, I realized that working in restaurants was fun, and then I loved it, and I wanted to um, own a restaurant. Right. Not in 1985. Not a laudable goal. My parents were not all that thrilled uh, with me living in a, a shack in the East Village of, of Manhattan. Um, I just told my mother, "Just come to the restaurant. It's fine. Don't worry. Don't, you don't need to see my apartment." And um, and I got. An, I thought, but I knew that every every owner that I worked for, when the chef left, he was left high and dry because none of them knew how to cook. And I thought, well, if I go learn a little bit on how to cook then I'll be better suited when I have my own restaurant so I did I did an apprenticeship in Ireland with uh, Sean Kinsler who'd been the executive chef of the PO cruise lines trained in trained in uh, Ritz of Paris and Connaught in London and uh, didn't know much other than that he hated yanks particularly me so I got fired <laughs> nine times in 6 months and you know first fucking yank since the potato famine's back in my kitchen you know go break someone else's heart But I came back to America expecting my plan had been that I would come back and just continue waiting tables and and put money away and buy a restaurant. But it turns out that when I came home that I was a cook. And so we just uh, continued on that way. And then in terms of owning a restaurant, I want to tell the story about I think the first time I met Rick, I was sitting outside uh, Waterboy counseling another young cook who was working for me what do I do chef where am I going in life and this guy comes out in check pants and a cup of coffee who looked like he hadn't cooked in six months and said you guys are cooks you want to see my kitchen (laughs) And we got to walk to walk into this to, to what was americos or what had been americos and to see the the inside of waterboy before it was open And so it was about 10 years before my restaurant opened and I remember the look in his eye and the excitement that he had and it really reignited me and pushed me into saying, I I wanna be that guy with a cup of coffee who's shaking it because he's so excited. (laughs) So I I owe it a debt of gratitude to uh, Rick and the work he's done.
1: What brought you to California? Because you grew up on Long Island, right? And then Manhattan. And then what brought you out here to California and what made you stay here in Sacramento?
3: So, I grew up on Long Island, and I am, for those of you from New York, a bridge and tunnel person, right? Which means I am not the cool kid, right? And uh, which was funny when I started living and working in Manhattan because the people who, it turns out, the people who are the cool kids are from Dubuque, right? You're like, no, no, Iowa is not better than Garden City. Um, So, our travels took us, we went to uh, Arizona which was not as exciting as Manhattan to cook in. And uh, I started to think about what I could do academically with food. Came up and visited uh, UC Davis, and they said, very nice that you have a degree in English. We love poetry too, we read it at Christmas. But this is a real school, and if you'd like to come here, you'll need some chemistry. So I went back and got a second bachelor's in chemistry from Arizona State, and then came here for graduate school, uh, where the professors and I agreed on one thing, which is that I did not belong in a degree for biochemistry doctorate and at the end of the year i i said okay i'm done you know where am i going what am i going to do 30 something and said realized that i'd spent a year here and fallen in love with the idea that we are in the middle of the richest agricultural region in the world that we're surrounded by farms and that i could meet and know and touch all the farms and the farmers and the people that come here and that it happens here in Sacramento 12 months a year, not just between June and September. And so I made the decision, I was working in Napa for the summer and made the decision that this is where uh, I was going to stay and this is where I was gonna have my restaurant. And so driving back from uh, St. Helena up to Sacramento, I knew that one day when I opened my restaurant that it would be called The Building and Loan because Jimmy Stewart in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, when he realizes a small town is where he should be, runs down the street and says, Merry Christmas so I knew uh, then uh, that I that we would open up Mulvaney's building alone and that was thirteen years ago
1: congratulations uh, all right so Rick on a similar note I guess that moment I know there was a moment uh, that I have to ask you about when you went to France and uh, you decided something about what you wanted to do with your own restaurant but backing up I've I read about you you started at sixteen as a dishwasher in, in a restaurant here and then you you went away, and a lot, of, a lot of the time, chefs go out from where they came and often don't come back. Sometimes they do come back. Um, so I just wanted to hear about you know, starting at 16, going away, deciding to come back, and that moment, I guess, I think it was in France, where you decided, this is what I'm gonna do and how I'm gonna do it.
2: That going away is kind of a metaphor for any conversation with me, or I'll just start talking and
1: <laughs> I'll reel you come in. Come back, come back, come back.
2: Um, <laughs> Yes, um, I've never done anything else. I've not, um, I started dishwashing when I was 16. I was cooking by the time I was 17. My first job was for a family that had relocated to, Sa- to Carmichael from uh, Los Angeles. And they were typical restaurant pirates. I mean, they went to the horse races, they drank more than they should. Uh, they were Mormons, <laughs> Jack Mormon for sure, um, but just like such a great family and, and all of them, there were like six brothers and a sister and they all spent time and it, you know it easily could have driven me crazy but they were all great and they all loved the restaurant business and their dad was the guy who initially inspired me. Like, I was a terrible employee for a couple of months and then finally somebody else was hired after me and then I became, all right, I've got somebody to work, I can show how to work and. I was actually pretty good at telling people what to do, um, or suggesting what to do, like yeah, um, depending on who you ask. But um, So I worked there for three years, and it was great, and I worked with a couple of cooks that were cooks, and I thought, man, this is it. I love doing this. What was the name um, of the restaurant? Well, this is the best part. It was called Buffet Excellence. Um, <laughs>
1: that's super a comeback I yeah, like that thing. no
2: it really um, and it it, it was uh, it, it was the second restaurant in what used to be called uh, smorgie boys it was the smorgie all you can eat right It's like it was so anyway all this food was made from scratch it wasn't very good but it was it was fine and it got me started <laughs> So I much to my parents' chagrin, because they might yeah, I don't know I guess they thought I was going to go to college, but once I started cooking, I completely lost interest in all academia and like I was cutting school, I was going to work I was like I can work and, um, I ended up uh, being fortunate I, I was able to do a culinary apprenticeship at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco back when it was still quite a quite a hotel. Um, it looks like a hotel now, but it's it's not what it was. Um, but it was a tremendous experience. I moved there when I was 19, and San Francisco, not necessarily the best place. When you're 19 and literally broke, um, There's, it has a lot to offer, but it's better if you're 25 and you have some money, but I was just working, and I, I had a great apprenticeship, and I got to work with people from all over the world, and it was just an amazing opportunity for a young you know, bumpkin from Carmichael. And, um, but I did well there, and I was I was supposed to move back to uh, Boston, where they were opening a, a new uh, Westin in, in the Copley Place, and I was I was on you know on track. I was they were going to you know turn me into one of their corporate chefs, and which is exactly what I wanted until I, it was delayed, and I moved back to sacramento and it was six months delayed i got a job i ended up meeting and uh, a chef that became you know my first real mentor um changed the way that i looked at food it was that was when i the first meal i ever had at Chez Panisse was with him and it it really did it changed my life and and you know i learned a lot of great things at the hotel but I've forgotten most of that, I mean, I, what I learned was how to work, I learned technique, I learned appreciation, but um, it has nothing in common with what I learned going forward. So yeah, I, you know, I, I was fortunate, um, a lot of people don't know this, but I, my former partner and I pretty much saved Randy Peregari's life, uh, or his, his restaurant life years ago, so he had a restaurant, he was, he'd had a string of bad luck, he'd opened a restaurant in San Francisco and that didn't do well and he was having some problems, but he had, he had um, opened a restaurant out on Fair Oaks Boulevard and turned it into a Peregrine's because his concept didn't work and then he was in debt big time. And um, my partner and I ended up buying a restaurant for, we didn't have any money, we took over all the debt because uh, we're stupid, But you know, <laughs> it like, so um, it shouldn't have worked, but it worked out great and uh, we Turned it around, had them bought out, and we owned a restaurant. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I still don't really. I mean, I have people that tell me what to do, and it's good. But it just started from there, and then uh, that was great. Uh, we went, we had a good partnership for several years, and then we started going different directions ideologically. And um, I went to France, and it changed. That was the other, second thing to change my life. And it was uh, when I was over there, I decided I no longer wanted to be partners in my current situation, and so I sold my interest, took some time off, and then met Patrick about six months later, uh, when we were ref- refurbing the Waterboy.
1: So, uh, was it just going to France and relaxing, or was it going to France and eating, uh, or both, or?
2: Uh, both, but uh, I, I, I went, uh, the chef at Chez Panisse uh, and his wife, they put on a food tour uh, every summer, like four, four different 10-day things, and I went with them, and it was fabulous. And I got to go and, you know, to markets with them and, and cooking lessons. And we went to restaurants and we went to wineries. And I just really liked the lifestyle. And like, Went to market every morning. I mean, it sounds like, oh, yeah, of course you did. Well, it's so different, right? Every day, it was like walking, <laughs> it's like grab a baguette and buy something. And there's live fish. And I'd never seen anything like this. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and then back then when that happened, I guess still here it was not as... Common to do that if if it was
2: right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that- Sacramento has come a very very long <laughs> way in, in a fairly relatively short period of time. So it's it's really a great time to be here.
1: And then leads to my next question for you both. When you opened up your restaurant, you know you got training and uh, from great people um, and from different areas: Europe, uh, East Coast, Bay Area. When you opened up your restaurant, what did you decide? I'm going to bring this experience that I learned. Uh, from the past with me and what did you decide I'm going to do something different at least for Sacramento or California what were the the traditions that you wanted to bring the new things you wanted to uh, to start uh, and has that changed uh, up in any way since over the years but I guess yeah a mix of old and new or throughout the old and totally new what what did you decide to bring with you and start Patrick.
3: Uh, I, I looked at the first menu that we had at the BNL the other day, and I thought, Jesus, I was a chicken, right? <laughs> so truthfully, when we opened, I was just afraid, right? After the first night of the restaurant opening, and we had 35 people come in and sat down at the end of the night, had a glass of wine, looked out and said, oh, fuck, there's an empty dining room. I have to fill each of these seats for the rest of my life every night. <laughs> But the truth is there's two things, right? One is that that I fell in love with Sacramento and everything that grows here. And the idea that we could share the bounty from the farmers and tell the stories and be able to feed people about the history of what it means to be in Sacramento, but also feed them good food at the same time, as we learned from Rick, as I've learned from other people that I've worked for, was a great thing. And the other hope for Bob and I that we didn't tell anybody, we told everybody when we opened, 24 seats, menu on the chalkboard, wine all available by the glass. Well, that's clearly a failure. And, and fortunate, right, because now I'm 57 and I can't read the chalkboard anymore. So <laughs> that would be disadvantageous as well. But the other thing that we told that we, Bob and I talked about and, and told each other was that what we wanted to do was create a place for people to come and gather and discuss the issues of the day and invite us, potentially invite us into those conversations. So for us, the restaurant has always been uh, a place of welcome. There's a restaurateur, Donny Medina, in Chicago, and I heard him once say to a, a group like this, welcome, that's the first word you'll hear when you enter any of my restaurants and the experience we, and the feeling we hope that you have when you leave. So when I met him after that, I told him I was stealing that without attribution <laughs> for the rest of my life.
1: And Rick, what about you?
2: That's a good one, yeah. Um,
3: Rick is now stealing that. (laughs) Um,
2: You know, when I decided to open Waterboy, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted it to look like, and I wanted it to look a lot like my favorite restaurant, Chez Panisse. I mean, I really wanted it to... um, I thought... This is great because I had had a restaurant on the other side of the river out in Carmichael, and I was so naive, I, and clearly um, I thought that people would actually <clears throat> follow me all the way down to Midtown, which is quite a different place. I mean, I thought they would just come for the food. It's like, no. They did not. Uh, they did, like, for the first weekend. Like, we we're overwhelmed, and everybody's like, great, congratulations. And it's like, I was so, and it's, like, it's going to happen. In a year, I'm going to be serving one meal a night, and everybody's going to eat the same thing. And it's like, nope. <laughs> and plus, uh, people, my customers out there were, um, I think, a little more well healed than the typical midtown uh, life. Uh, type person that was happening then and they didn't. They were worried about their cars getting broken into. The first question out of their mouth was, Do you have valley parking? And they're like, no, I can't afford it. And so, you know, back then, you know, if you want a valley parking, you paid for it. And I could barely <laughs> it was hard. Uh, it was it was a very um, it was a rough go. We started off very busy and then bam. And and honestly it took five years. And there were several nights when I walked out of thinking, we're not going to be able to open tomorrow. And I said, but one, one funny thing is when I was working at Peregrine's, Randy decided for some reason to do these two-for-one coupons, which were the bane of everybody's existence. <laughs> it's like, no, no, we can't give food away, and, and oh my God, it was just painful. And I, you know, smart ass that I am, I always said, you know, if, if I don't, I'm not doing coupons ever. If the, if the restaurant's not good enough on its own, if they're not coming for the food and for the good service then I'm gonna close. And so one night uh, after, I don't know, we'd been open about three years, three and a half years, and I was, service was getting towards the end of the night and my bookkeeper was working evenings and she came walking down the stairs and she came around the corner and she was crying. And I go, what's wrong? And she goes, <laughs> She goes, if you don't do a coupon, we're gonna have to close. And it was like, the next day I had a coupon in the Sacramento Bee. It was like, that's... <laughs> I totally went back on everything I said, and it was a terrible coupon because we just like threw it out there and I was kind of a smart ass in it and I wrote some snarky things, but I also forgot to put uh, an expiration date on it. (laughs) Honest to God, for like six years, we were seeing these coupons, (laughs) I don't know (laughs) Including my uh, CPA, which is why he's a CPA and uh, I'm (laughs) good.
1: Uh, That, it's a perfect segue into my next question. Um, I wanted to know what you thought, I guess, of um, running a restaurant here in Sacramento and the clientele. Um, we've had a few other uh, groundbreaking events where we've asked people who you know in the service industry about you know what's it like in Sacramento, and they have their they have their pros and they have their what could be improved in terms of people's taste or preferences or demands or desires so i'm just curious about you and your clientele you don't have to offend anyone but i'm just curious you know what um what's great about us as diners in sacramento and what could we do less of more of, differently when dining out that that you want us to know about silence uh patrick
3: to yeah spend more money (laughs) that'd be great i think that uh what's good thing about sacramento is the advent of uber right because it means that people come from land park they don't drive so when we hear that parking is horrible what goes in my ear is business is good uh i don't know that that would be true if there wasn't the availability of uh, rideshare and stuff like that about rick i want to say that yeah I, I could tell so i didn't i had not had a business yet but i could see that he was struggling and i was a not very well paid cook at paragary's at the time and i used to go on sunday night to have a steak, and a glass of wine, because I didn't want him to go out of business.
2: He did. He was a great, great early customer, so, yeah.
1: So, supportive. I, I just
2: wish he had more friends, you know, so.
1: <laughs> what about you, Rick?
2: Oh, um, yeah, I love, uh, I, we've, I feel like I've been very clear in the type of customer that I wanted to cultivate. And I think um, I, I look out and I think we did a good job. I mean, we, we, we have the type of customers that we like. And I, um, I I do wish they'd come see us more often still. you know, I think, I think people should eat at restaurants every night. Um, I know that's not realistic, but I think so. I mean, like lunch and dinner. Um, um, what it, my biggest concern now is, you know, we've been around. Tw- we're on our twenty-third year, and that's, you know, it's not like Frank Fatlong, but it's a long time. And, and and some of my customers are getting a little old, um, and some of them are we're not seen as frequently. So my big goal now is to try and make my son, my old ass uh, attractive to young people, um, which I'm not uh, very good at. So that's been what I I've, I've been my focus is trying to. Um, get on you know facegram or instagram whatever <laughs> facebook i 'm kidding i know i 'm actually on facebook it 's uh, i 'm not very good at it but um, yeah i don 't know I think things I, I have I have personally been able to see such a great change in you know just the people coming out and, and I was ready to throw in the towel when, when Yelp first came out. And I used to just like, come on, like, can, you can't say shit like that. But they do. And, um, and I'm very sensitive. I mean, I'm thin-skinned like I'm a cook. I'm an introverted cook that, you know, and, and uh, that's, some of that stuff hurts, man. So I just vowed never to read it again. And I told my people, I was like, if there's something we need to attend to, just let me know we'll attend to it. But I'm not reading this shit, so um, yeah. But I, yeah, you know, I just eat out more often
3: but we do yeah i think that we have you know sacramento has been very good to us so i think that so rick i've always admired too right because he's so intentional right he had the idea that that this mediterranean cuisine and the climate they looked like so growing up the scars that my mother left on me culinarily and and doing an apprenticeship in ireland where the playbook for cooking is really thin uh (laughs) meant that coming to sacramento means that there's not a whole lot of rules right or and so we've always been open to the to weird shit, right? The grilled beef heart that's on the menu tonight, which is really good, and, and it's just because I'm a Frank Zappa fan that we have it. The, But we've been blessed, right? And like Rick says, right, we have the kind of customer we want, right? So for the last over a decade now, what has happened is that people come in, and people will come into the restaurant and say, oh, hell no, I'm not eating heart, except for I'm at Mulvaney, so if I'm going to eat it, fuck, I'm going to try it here. Let's go. And for us, that's really the blessing. And to see the change, right, in the way that people eat food and talk about food in Sacramento has been really great.
1: So yeah, I guess in terms of uh, uh, generations, different generations, you know, I've been reading a lot about um, in San Francisco, a lot of chefs are saying, well, aside from the costs, they say taste have changed. People want comfort food, and uh, there's a woman, um, I think Tracy Lizard Dan. I'm not sure uh, who had a. I can't remember. I was spacing the name of a restaurant in Oh Jardinere in Jardinere and she's closing it. Um, and she's going to focus on. I she has some well, for lack of a better word, Mexican comfort food restaurants in San Francisco. She's like that's where I'm going to focus on, and it seems like that might be a trend where I'm going where my customers younger. They want Things that are different, it might be different than what I'm doing now. So, how do you account for that? I guess you you have your loyal customers, but you have to think ahead. Does that change anything in terms of just besides what's on the menu, the way you think about everything and running your restaurant, or no? Right?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is real stuff I think about all the time. I, I walk in the waterway and sometimes I just want to throw up I mean I've been looking at everything so it's like oh my god I need new chairs I need new color I need new lamps I need new everything and, and everybody no change of thing it's like god but I'll go insane if I look at this stuff but um, there's definitely things changing I mean you know Thomas Keller did such a great thing for uh, the profession in general elevating it I mean I really hold him with, sorry with the French laundry yeah yep. the- and he was just such a committed chef and so it, he amazing. Um, and he single-handedly caused the price of white truffles to become something that nobody can ever touch again, yeah, unless, unless you live in Manhattan. On, uh, yeah. So, uh, but things are definitely changing in that regard. I mean there will always be the French Laundry, there will always be Le Bernardin, there will always be these places, these temples, until these guys retire. But, you know, 10, 10 years ago there were there were so many restaurants that were trying to be that. There were so many places doing the chef's tasting menu. It's like, oh yeah, but can he cook? It's like, no, it's not important. He's a tasting menu. It's great. You got to try it. Um, I'm sorry. I should. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. Um, well, maybe one. No, I'm <laughs> um, But change has to happen, and it is very tricky trying to introduce change to the people that have supported you all of these years. And you know, I look at the tablecloths at my restaurant, and I think, you know you'd save some money and it'd be better for the environment and bottom line if you <laughs> got rid of those tablecloths and I don't think I can though you know but that was the little stigma we always had to fight at Waterboy is people think oh it's such it's such a fancy place it's only for special occasions so Like, no I will go broke if you save this for your anniversary you come in like it's it's more you know I always wanted to set it up like you know, a little cafe or a little, you know, brasserie in France. They all they all have tablecloths because they have ugly tables. Of course you have tablecloths. You, you got to look at the tables at Waterboy. They're terrible. Um, you're trying to keep them free of gum, but they're really ugly uh, underneath. So it's a necessity. But that is a concern, you know, going, you know, for the, yeah. Or, you know, how do you, what do you do? You know, so, I mean, you know, Pat, Patrick's done such a great job. His place is so comfortable. I mean, you walk in and, the bartender yelling at you the minute you walk in the dump kit. <laughs> Dan, yeah. But yeah what My
3: wife you? is rolling her eyes at the word comfortable. <laughs> That's not her description.
1: And what about you? Are you fine with how Mulvaney's Biennale is here? Do you think about, do I got to change it? Do I have to entice a new clientele in a totally different way? What are your thoughts on this?
3: We think every day about the 45 people that work for us, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, what we don't talk about, so we talk about the food that we love. We talk about the farmers bringing in all this cool shit for us to play with. But at the end of the day, or a big part of it, as, as I've gotten older, is one, that I'm no longer a cook, right? That now I'm becoming a teacher, right? And, and it's more important for me to teach, and it's hard to accept, one, that you can't be out on the court anymore. And now kind of in some ways I'm not even like on the bench being a coach, but I have to be back in the hallway like Vlade Divat and be the general manager, right? <laughs> and then how do you how do you support your team in a way that they can move forward and create create that feeling of hospitality and warmth that we're going for? And for years I just always thought that everybody wants to have their own restaurant, right? They want to be like Rick, right? That's the deal So you're going to go out and have your own restaurant. And then maybe five or six years ago, I realized that maybe not everybody wants to have their own place. And uh, so I'm not really a quick learner. So it took another five years to realize that, that, to act on that, right? To say to our employees, what, what is a fulfilling life to you? Because I really think that hospitality and food and service is a worthwhile way, at least for me to spend my time, right? In the trip around the sun, but, but how, how can I you know, we've been blessed, Bob and I have been blessed right by people of Sacramento. And how do we make sure that our staff feels that same that same feeling, right? That they feel empowered to, to make the choices that they want to make, that they feel empowered to make decisions to live a life that's going to be fulfilling for them. So, so and, and yes, that shit keeps me up at night.
1: I w- wanted to encourage people to start lining up the mic. I've got a couple questions, um, but that will give you time to go line up and ask a question right there, uh, by the pillar. Um, so you mentioned how you know not as much cooking anymore, uh, at least in your restaurants, but you're doing plenty of other stuff. I wanted to ask you know again about that. Uh, Getting your voice out there in the community in a way, you know, beyond the kitchen. You you both are doing that. So I wanted to see what your what you're working on right now. Um, that's very near and dear to your heart. Um, organization effort. I know Patrick, you've been getting a few headlines lately for something in particular. So I wanted to see what you're working on. That's you know related to. I think it's probably related to food or the industry. But um, yeah, just tell us what's uh, uh what you're focusing on now besides your business? Rick, why don't you start?
2: Well, I don't know. We, um, I am so focused on trying to attain in, uh, balance in life. And I think you know, I, both of my restaurants, I have been able to, not only do I cultivate customers, but uh, employees. And so, there's that old saying in the restaurant business, like, or any you know business in general. It's like the customer is the most important thing. The customer is always right. The customer is your most important thing. It's like not true, not even close. Because the most important thing that I have is my employees. Because if I don't have good employees, I won't even have to worry about having customers. And seriously, that's like that is the the mayhem truth. I I don't even know if I made that up, but I've been saying it so long, I think I did. Um, but so um, I'm kind of off the subject here. I have always been more or less, uh, you know, when things come up that happen in my life, in my, you know, there are a few organizations close to my heart that we always try and support, um, you know, our, besides the, obviously our hardworking farmers and, and the food literacy. But I don't know, there's so many things happening that when they happen, all of a sudden that's our focus that's what we do so something disaster and, and unfortunately all of these things things happen are happening out there at an alarming rate um i'm not even going to talk about elections and things like that's <laughs> just <now>. later later <laughs> uh, um, but yeah i just there's just a lot if you look around just trying to help our our, our city along and 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 the people i'm really blessed in my in my whole life i really am and i just it's it's hard sometimes to to if you i read the papers a lot and just man there's just some stuff going on out there and um so really nothing specific but just if i don't know we're yeah
1: serving good food to people is one and then I, keeping your balance. If I
2: didn't have a restaurant, I'm sure I'd be a butler. I mean, I really do. I have that. I, I can't really turn it off. You know, it's just what I do. That's
1: all I do. You're in the service industry for yep. life. Yep, yep. Patrick.
3: So I, when I did go back to uh, ASU, Dennis had a professor who used to call me Dude, which I, being from New York, hated. And don't call me Dude. And at one point I said, hey, I don't really belong in graduate school and I don't belong in ASU and the fuck, I don't have 4.0s and I'm not that good and why should I be here? And he said, dude, you would be great. I'd love to have you in my lab working in chemistry. He said, you want to study food, which I think is really weird. And I have no idea what that is, but apparently there is a space, right? You, we, told, we know that there's places where people study food as science. And because I'm a scientist, only 0.5% of us are ever going to be famous, and only 0.5% of those of us that are famous are going to win a Nobel Prize. But we all, every day, work to move science forward and to move things forward. And so when I think about like, what we do here in Sacramento and what we do as cooks and as people in hospitality, I've always remembered what Dennis told me, right? And I always view it as we're, we're just pushing forward, right, and trying to make things better, each in our own way and each of those ways is valuable and and only 0.5 of 0.5% of us are going to be famous. And that's great, right, because the truth is that we're all family and we're all working together. What we've been doing lately, I think, is because of the... Mental health has obviously been a pretty big issue and I am a media whore, um, so I... And, but I think it's it serves well, right, because I think it brings attention to the fact that in hospitality, we are always on your side. Right. Is your is your drink cold? Is your coffee hot? Is your steak cooked properly? Do you like those things? And we never we have yet. We're just beginning to turn that around on ourselves and take care of ourselves to Rick's point to say that if you have good employees, then you have a good restaurant. And what does that look like? So I tell people it's like Monty Python, right? I could come up to your table with my hand cut off and say, how is everything? They're like, you're bleeding. It's only a flesh wound. (laughs) And that has turned into a a program that we called uh, I Got Your Back. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's peer support and web-based uh, referrals for people. And I, I won't go into the whole thing, but you all can look at igotyourback.info and uh, see what we're doing. And it's pretty, it's pretty cool to uh, help people because there's a lot of people in pain out there. But as we talk about it more, because we talk about it and everyone says, oh, it's about suicide or drug use or alcohol or whatever. No, the truth is that most of us in the restaurant business love what we do. Just like Rick said, he'd be a butler, right? I mean, I would be doing this anyway, because i love it, and most of us do, and and the uh, end result, the reason that we're doing this, though, is because we want to help those of us in our family who aren't doing well to make them better, right? Because in hospitality, what we do is try to bring people along and bring them a happy environment.
1: And this is something that um, you're spreading the word about nationally, right? This is not just sacramento focus. It's for restaurant industry all over. Is that the... Is that the
3: Sure. So the hope is so we use this. I got your back program in Mulvaney's and it will be piloted probably in the next month and a half to a dozen or so restaurants in Sacramento when we have it grown to a place where it's real. The California Restaurant Association is going to help us push it out to every hospitality worker in the state of California. Um, We were in Denver last week speaking about it. I was in Toronto the week before uh, to watch hockey. But I was in Toronto and I, and I posted something in, on Facebook and I got a private message that said, are you Patrick Mulvaney, who I saw in the Wall Street Journal? Do you have time for a cup of coffee? I want to talk about mental health. So I think there's a big, through no fault of mine, right? I'm not a genius, but, but, it, but it, we really have struck a chord. And so we're trying, it, just like Dennis said, right? We all do the best. So I, I don't do well every day and Lord knows my wife will tell you that, but I do the best I can every day. And so as we move forward this, what we're hoping with it is just to do the best we can. And so yes, the the it'll help it helps Mulvaney's already. It will help Sacramento. We hope it helps California. We hope it helps country. We hope that other people can learn from it and other sectors can help too. But um, for me it's just one one person at a time that we're helping.
1: And before I take the first question, the mic, you know, I wanted to ask about that because obviously Anthony Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain uh, is a, a big name, and so when he passed, that was a, a big deal. And then uh, there's so many, uh, who is it, Gordon Ramsay, Hell's Kitchen, you know, this, this pressure, and, and then there's also, I guess, the glamor, the pressure. You see, we see a lot of that watching Food Network. Um, and I'm just curious about, like, what's, um, what, do you, what do you want us to know about running a restaurant when we see what we see on TV? And, uh, and then we see the reality of what could happen, as with Anthony Bourdain. Um, and you're there managing a kitchen, running a business, you know, keeping all this stuff at high pressure, uh, but it's what you wanna do. But there's a lot that's involved with it that, you know, may send someone else just running for, you know, to jump off a cliff. What, uh, I so I guess my question is like, what do you want us to know about the business that maybe is glamorized too much or, uh, um, Overlooked or under-focused on that—that uh, that we should know as 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 customers or, you know, supporters of of this business, Patrick.
3: So when we we'd been talking about it, right? There was a rash of people who died too soon or early in the year, and and then our friend, our beloved chef uh, Noah Zonka, in May. Sorry. So it hurt, right?
0: Yeah. And.
3: I was going to a conference with fifteen chefs in upstate New York, and Bobbin called and said, "Bourdain's dead, dead." Um, so it was good for me, right? Because I got to spend the weekend with fifteen chefs talking about it. Um, something talking about that and it was uh at the but i didn't talk i was i was brought there to talk about the farm bill so i was mostly talking about that shit and at the end when they said what are you going to do when you go home i said there's something called mental health and we don't have any in our industry i'm going to find out how to help it because i have a meeting planned with healthcare officials on tuesday and uh so we met that tuesday and then um they said, yeah, this is great. Let's talk about it. We'll meet in three months or whatever. And I said, fuck that. Chicken breast takes eight minutes. So if you can't solve world hunger in 12, then you're too slow for me. And Jonathan Porteous from WellSpace Health said, the chef says the tribe needs to move fast. And so let's go with them. Even if it's wrong, it's okay. Because what I've been saying to them was that in the kitchen, we fail every day, right? Whether we like, we don't like it, right? Like Rick said, but sometimes those Yelp reviews are accurate. Right, and and every day we fail, and in that meeting, the first meeting with the the grown-ups, right, the the straight people, I call them, that were in that uh, meeting, someone said Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, um, even Robin Williams, right, they had everything, and I just don't understand why, and I said to him, I spent 50, I spent the weekend with fifteen chefs, been calling friends from around the country, talking to people here in Sacramento and no one in hospitality says why. We're surprised, we're angry, we're sad, we're disappointed, but we fail every day, right, in a restaurant. You fail over and over again and keep coming back, right? You, you even go so far as to put coupons in the paper, right? <laughs> and although the water never rose, rises up to me to where I might drown, and so I don't understand the idea of suicide, I I understand the idea of failure and the challenge that it does to go over, right? So I guess what I'd like customers to know is to give us a break, right? Not when we're wrong, but that that you have to give us a break. And I think Bob would agree that what's changed in our culture of the restaurant of the B&L over the last six or eight months is that idea that we now are giving each other a break, right? That we are saying, are you okay, right? Because... I want you to be okay before I rip your fucking head off
1: <laughs> Rick, what about you?
2: it's a it's a <clears throat> it's a tricky business uh, to say the least um, you know, the restaurant business is hard, and I always say it 's not coal mining hard it's not it, but it's it, it's really hard and what happens you know especially in the kitchen part of it um is you attract, you know, uh, mostly people that are misfits, you know, for the most part. You know, they're not going on scholarship anywhere. They're not on teams. They haven't found a lot of success. A lot of times what happens, they get a taste of the kitchen. They usually start as a dishwasher prep cook, but then they finally, um, you know, they've they find something that they can actually do and they can do pretty well. And if they work in a, in a place that has a positive, you know, environment, then it can, it can change their life. And, and, you know, for better, or for worse, it's, it's hard working in this business. Don't believe anything you see on these reality shows. Cause that is nothing. Any successful restaurant is nothing like you would see. There's, there's, I've never seen one yet where I thought, man, that, such a realistic and you know i it just Not even doesn't top chef. have top no chef oh my god work. it's the worst yeah yeah um but it, you know it's hard and so you know a lot of these people that work in restaurants and i've always tried to cultivate in my restaurants um, uh cohesiveness between front of the house and back of the house and i've i've never tolerated that kind of shit that goes on in places where it's like yeah it's them against us it's like no nope, it's all of us here and this is what we do, and and um, what happens there is you know these become your family, so to speak. Because when you work in a restaurant, a typical restaurant, you are working odd hours. You're working your evenings. You're working your weekends. You're working your holidays. You're working all those times when everybody else is not working, getting together, having their fun, doing their thing, and you're all working. So you you pull together and um, it's amazing how strong some of those those bonds are and you know but you know with that said we're close but we don't see it's like because you go away from work and you go do your thing and and you know i, I think this is an amazing thing that that these guys are putting together with the mental health i come from a mental health yeah, you know, being a big concern of mine. You know, it affected members of my family and, and um and it's never been dealt with properly in in our culture. It's just so not dealt with. Um and and things are changing though, you know, and that's people are getting braver about it. And, you know, that's what it takes getting getting the word out that it's okay. You know, it's like mental health is the most important health. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's really hard to see our people not wanting to be here anymore. Like, I can't even imagine... Just another one today, a friend of mine uh, that I work with told me that they lost uh, one of their employees over the weekend. And it's like, shit. Like, so, I don't know, I've always just tried to, to do everything I can to stay engaged with my employees and make sure that they're OK. And you can never really be sure, but um, it's really important. It, it, this, is, this is really a good thing going forward, um, just to give people the confidence that they're, they're going to be heard, there's going to be help, there's going to be access to getting better, or at least getting acknowledged
1: patrick what's the website again i will post it but just so everyone hears it again
3: i got your back dot info all right thanks. and the and it will get better right and we know we've seen at the bnl right that once you talk about it that that enables others to stand up and talk about it and to say that sometimes we we kind of hide especially in the kitchen right behind this position where we don't want to appear weak but the truth is that the way to become Stronger is by admitting where you're short
1: Thank you. All right. How about we take our first question at the mic? Thank you for being patient Hey, thank you first. I I'd, I'd just like to do a shout out to Rick Mahan who 20 years ago when you were really struggling you volunteered to help uh, build a playground at um, at Bret Hart which serves poor kids in Oak Park and I didn't know that you were struggling. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but the other question I have is, I was a big customer of Americos, which preceded Waterboy, and they used to have this
2: wonderful dish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it S- was spaghetti. Pasta- fettuccine. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where I'm- is that? <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Well, all right. What's it called again?
2: it was uh, it was asparagus fettuccine okay and, and and it had mushrooms and asparagus and cream like scads of cream like more cream than you can imagine and honestly you would think this is I mean I, I would they said you're gonna have the asparagus fettuccine here you go possibly when it's in season yeah <laughs> But I could not believe how many, that dish hit, hit, hit it hard with people, man. They loved it. And I was literally like, uh, yep, we're going to have asparagus fettuccine because they're not going to take it. So
1: <laughs> So you do have it?
2: Any time you want it, you come in and say, you want Amarika's fettuccine with asparagus and we'll make it if, if the asparagus is in season. Yeah, yeah. My... Really, that's true. I mean, if we have it, we'll do it. I mean, we, we have gotten really good at saying yes, because if you say no, that doesn't go over well. It's like, yep, if we, if we have it, you can have it.
1: I'm going to check in with you for, like, in about two weeks or so and see how many orders you've gotten for asparagus fettuccine with mushroom. That sounds good, actually.
2: Just keep that to yourself, though. Don't don't put it on your Facebook feed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's big podcast, Rick, so sorry. Um.
0: It's like in and Uh,
1: out with the secret menu.
3: Everyone in his kitchen now hates him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, next question at the mic, please. I hate to admit this, but I have a love hate relationship with tasting menus. How do you feel about that? And do you think with the Michelin Guide coming to Sacramento, are we going to have more tasting menus? Yeah, what do you think, now that the Michelin Guide is coming, what, a month or so? What, How will that change anything in Sacramento if it does?
3: I'm okay with you having a love-hate relationship with the tasting menus.
2: <laughs> I'll finally get some sleep. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: when, I mean, don't you just sometimes go, guide- oh, that was really good. I want a third bite.
2: Yeah. Um I've had uh, just a few really awesome tasting menus and but I I've, I've only ordered them in places where I knew it was going to be a good experience. Um, I think a lot of times uh maybe the chefs should have tasted their me- their own menu like all the way through. Yeah. Right?
1: But even if all 10 courses are really good it's Two bites, I want
2: four bites. That's uh, Blame Thomas Keller. He has this theory of diminishing returns, and so he's like, leave him wanting one more bite. So he's actually succeeded with you, yeah.
1: Didn't you have a term for that? I think Chelsea told me that you don't like thimble plating. Is that the term?
2: Oh, tweezers. Tweezers. Tweezers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, There, there are a few things I'm trying to go my whole life without doing, and, and that is uh, one of them, uh, using tweezers, because tweezers have good uses, uh, but not in the kitchen. They're not like Amen. knives, forks, yeah spatulas, uh, tweezers you, in the bathroom, right, and plucking things. And, yeah
1: But uh, the other part of the question about the Michelin Guide, um, I mean, that just got so much attention, but what do you think? Uh, about the Michelin Guide in Sacramento. Any thoughts? I don't know what to think about it, so I'm wondering about you two. Okay, they have some laughter. Patrick.
3: So the first the first reaction, because I'm a seven-year-old inside, is I want him, I want him, I want em. And then second side is my 12-year-old who's getting acne. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to get him. I'm not going to get him. I'm not going to get em. And then I started to think about it more, and... And I think that what actually, and again, goes back to Rick, right? We have our customers. And I think that what we have at the B&L is, is what we have. And, and that's what we're doing. And the Michelin guide in general, I think is a reflection of the change in food and our food culture in Sacramento started by Rick and people before him. That's really accelerated over the last few years. So I think, I think it's a good thing uh, to come here. It's not. It turns out that it's not my life goal to have a Michelin star. And, um, but if people get them here, and I, I suspect they will, then, then you know, sure, I still want one, fuck, I'm still seven years old. But uh, but if if I don't get one, that that's okay too, right? As long as my customers are still happy. And, and I was also made happy because the woman, Carolyn Batetta, who's uh, in Visit California, CEO who helped bring them here, said that she thinks that the Michelin guide coming back to California is really a tool for them to reassert their dominance because they've started to lose sway to uh, food advisor or trip advisor or something like that has, has in some way superseded them in, their, in preeminence of the places that uh, food tourists go. And so maybe it's a, it's a gambit for Michelin too.
1: Rick, do you have any thoughts?
2: Yes, uh, I I honestly don't know what to, th- I think it's good. I do think it's good. I think it brings a certain legitimacy to our city. And, and it's a state. I mean, Cal- it's going to be statewide. So, and that hasn't happened anywhere yet, only in California. So, in New York, it's only, you know, in Manhattan, in, I think, right? Um, but it's just in Chicago, it's, or in Illinois, it's only Chicago. It's not anywhere else. So, here it's going to be statewide. and. Yeah, I mean, if somebody says, "Man, we think you're good enough for a Michelin star," I mean, clearly, that would be the most I would even want or hope for. It's like we don't, we don't, we don't have that type of restaurant. It's going to be three Michelin stars. Just don't have it. I mean, maybe the kitchen will get a couple. I mean, they've got a great shout out, um, and I'm amazed that there, like, there was a certain news organization that actually questioned whether they sh- should even be in that. And I, I was so pissed, it was like, I honestly, I, I, I didn't post anything to do anything, but they're like, of course. I mean, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. They've committed to this. They are, if it's not your cup of tea, that's fine, but don't, it, I don't think it was very appropriate for that to be questioned at all. Those people have worked their asses off and they've done such great things for the city, of Sacramento. they really have. Um, great so I don't know like I'll be if I don't get a Michelin star but a, a couple of other places do and I'll, I'll say to my cooks it's like I don't know guys because uh, you know clearly we should have one. so <laughs> I don't know I like I think some of my cooks would love it I, I personally okay I'll take one I don't care it's like, <laughs> I don't, but I think, I don't know, I don't even think it's, I, I walk into my restaurant and I'm like, oh, next restaurant please.
1: <laughs> All right, next question. Hi chefs. My question is more on the business side of the restaurant industry. It seems like the past few years there's been a barrage of legislation and regulations from rising minimum wages to taxes on service fees, um, two part question succinct, how do you Feel you can absorb all these changes or can you and how do they relate to your customers? And the second question, what do you feel is the biggest threat or deterrent to the restaurant industry at this time? Rick?
2: There's a lot to consider there. Um, I personally think that restaurant employees should make a lot more money. They really should. It's it's a joke. And when you compare what you know, what a, what a a tip-top line cook in Sacramento, top of his game. I just said that. Oh my God, it's like a cliche. Uh, you know, can make fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour. That's like somebody who's really good. Somebody who shows up. Somebody who does a great job. Somebody who's pleasant to be with. Somebody who's just a. That's it's not very much money. I mean, that's like. Really, and so I always think restaurant food should be more expensive because the restaurant tours aren't I mean they do I do fine, right? I do fine. but you know people say, "Oh, your restaurants are busy. you must be it's like, yeah, but you don't really understand all of the math behind there. And there's really I can't think of too many more businesses where the profit margins are any tighter than in the restaurant. And still you know the people that work for you are underpaid so it's it's hard I'm, I'm always all for anything it's like I'm, I'm never gonna say I'm never gonna fight a minimum wage raise it's like hell yeah bring it up but when somebody when minimum wage goes up everybody gets a raise because you can't just like say okay well you get a minimum so you if you don't if the cooks don't get a raise then then they're basically not they're taking a cut um, and you know things have to happen but we don't have in San Francisco it's they have the healthy San Francisco you know and there's all kind of, you know, charges that go on to their customers bill at the end to ensure that people get and I have a hard time arguing with that right because healthcare is ridiculous and most of the, most of the people that work in most of the people that do the hard work in the restaurants they can't afford it I mean I decided a couple of years ago I couldn't I honestly couldn't live with myself if I didn't do something for it so like, that's when we started to pay Half of people's medical insurance if, if they chose to, and I mean I, I've had every intention of paying all of it, and there's, but the reality of that is it's, that could never happen I, I wouldn't get they They'd have to find a new boss because I'd quit because I wouldn't be making any money. Sorry, Gail, what was, uh, and the second part was?
1: What do you feel is the biggest detriment at this time to the restaurant industry
4: in California or Sacramento?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of robots, or bad news for kitchen employees. I'm kidding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There,
1: actually, is there a restaurant in uh, Palo Alto or Silicon Valley where they're making pizzas with robots now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's that, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's bad news. Is that something you're looking at? Yeah,
2: that's bad news. Robots don't taste very good when no. they're cooked. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. I'll get back to you. This is Gail. She works with me. She's awesome. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Patrick, what about you?
3: Yeah, I think there's lots of there's lots of issues, but. I think that goes to what we do in hospital. We're not there to tell you that my feet hurt or that my you know. We're there because we want you to have a good time. Like Rick said, on times when we're working, what we're working towards is you sitting down at a table and breaking bread and improving your relationships and telling the old stories and trying to keep our society stronger. So yeah, there's a lot of shit in the way. Like I hate sorry, I hate parking right, and I hate the people who can't figure out parking meters right in front of our. Thing And you call downtown and they're like, well, there's parking meters and what happens to people who can't figure them out? It's like, no, it's really easy. You just I said, no, 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 dude, I can't figure that out. And so Matt Ironman, please feel free to text him. And, uh, but at least he's the director of parking at City of Sacramento. I swear to God, at least twice a week I go out when someone can't use the machine. I dial his number and just hand them the phone. <laughs> and they say... Yes, yeah, I don't know what his name is. It's a big guy with his, oh, his name is Patrick, okay. Well, I can't make the... So yeah, there's lots of stuff wrong, man. But the truth is that we're blessed, right? And we get to, we live a pretty charmed life and and we just wanna share it with everybody. Thank
1: you. All right, next question. Uh, I'm Dexter with US Food. She kind of stole the thunder there with a good question. Um, Aside from the need for ever-changing
2: an environment with the restaurants, uh, what's your biggest struggle? Is it like technology, uh, finding good labor, rising food cost, and you can't say all of that.
1: <laughs> pick, just pick one. We're t- top t- one, right?
2: Technology is my biggest fear. <laughs> I honestly like I long for just a charcoal grill and and handwritten tickets and no social media and stuff like that. But I. I know my weaknesses, and that's that's a big concern, but it is i mean nothing nothing ever goes down the price of food keeps going up and and that's you know that's a deal that's something i I think about all the time like we now have entrees at over thirty dollars that was a big thing for me it's like i didn't want to do that i don't want to but the you have to um and i I'm not a big proponent of I mean, I know you work for U.S. Foods. Like you guys are doing your best job, and you provide a, a great product. And but now, like companies like that are doing more than they used to. Like when I first started here, you know, U.S. Foods, which was you know before that it was Cisco and uh, S.E. Rykoff, and they just did groceries. And now companies like you know do everything. Like, you have produce, you have fish, and you have this, and and that's a great thing, I think, for for certain types of restaurants, but for me, you know, we still have these relationships with directly, like, most of my meat, I get, like, when I buy pork, I buy it from, you know, one place. When I buy beef, it's 90% of it comes from one place. When I buy chickens, one place. And I I like the idea, but it's getting harder for, for, you know, those people, On the prices, you know keep going up so you know we just keep keep going along and uh, but it, it is for me the playing the having to play the technology game and and having to sit back and realize that you know what I my presence on social media is is much more important than an old guy like me is comfortable with I think I mean, it is. I mean, I'm in restaurant years. I'm like 137, you know. <laughs> so almost, yeah. I'll be 59 this year. It seems like shit. He's been around. That's it. He's been around forever. But um, yeah, did that answer?
1: Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Patrick, biggest fear.
3: Being found out. Um, I think that the. Yeah, because that's part of the part of the show too, right? Is that we're putting on the 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 happy happy clown face in front, <clears throat> but yeah, it as it. So I think Sacramento's changed, right? When I think about being in the kitchen in Paragaries in nineteen ninety five, and some of the the three farmers that came in the back door and brought stuff in, and it was cool, right? My favorite was the guy who came in and said, "I think he was there to drop off a bag of dope." And i said what are you doing this weekend he's like oh i went out for mushrooms i was like oh cool what kind you get he's like i didn't find any good ones i got these yellow ones though they're really nice i'm like oh chanterelles he's like yeah i think someone said that he brings in two grocery bags of chanterelles i was like "Fuck, that's amazing it's like you you want to sell them he's like i don't know you want it can i get a hamburger i was like you my friend get cheese and bacon To where we are today where rick says where i can call someone and say we have a farmer that grows thousands of pounds of chilies for us where i took some sweet peas from the farm or from the farmer's market on sunday and made a simple syrup for soda which was cool because it's purple and then you squeeze a lemon in it and it turns pink and i like cool shit like that so now i can call a farmer that i know has a flower farm and we'll get 48 bundles of flowers my wife will be upset because there's all these flowers in the house but we'll be able to do cool stuff right so for me it's the fear of losing like rick said that touch with the farmer that we've worked so hard uh, to create but i and i guess i think that it probably won't diminish because the other truth is that as we've started to tell the stories of of the farmers that you guys all know and love and tr- use as almost household words in the food industry that in that way that's part of our helping them right helping them get to the next generation
1: um all right, and I have a question about that. We did a, we did a great uh, event, a food for thought event about the ag industry here in, in California and, and really how immigration was impacting it. I learned a lot. Um, a lot of the fruits and vegetables, I think asparagus in particular is being grown, more of it now in Mexico than anywhere else. But there's still this big, very big focus on you know, farm to fork and, and young farmers getting them here. I'm just wondering what you're seeing about how is California's ag agriculture industry, especially in NorCal, are we doing good? Or compared to you know, when you started, are there still a lot of individual farms? Are there young farmers? Um, are you buying more from farms that have consolidated into a larger company? Uh, is immigration impacting that in any way? Um, I'm just curious your thoughts about the state of our ag industry. How's it going, quickly?
3: 15 acres of new urban farms in West Sacramento in the last two years, which are all founded by small, young farmers, which talk about, talk, speak to the future. Wow.
1: And what about you, Rick?
2: No, that's great, right? Like, I know that I'm, I'm comfortable. Like, I'll never lose that with the small farmers. I I'd worry about small farmers, for sure, because I think that they're they have limited um, places that will be utilizing their so their their goal is to do the best they can and, and promote for themselves and and advocate and for restaurants of a certain type. I don't want to say caliber. It's like, but a certain type of restaurant that's going to be always important to procure produce from people that really give a shit about it. You know, and really, you know, love it and and bring it. But that's hard. I mean, I I say cooks work hardest. I think farmers work the hardest. Like it's always there, and you know, big ag is big ag. Big ag, you know, hopefully they set their sights on what they're good at. You know, and there's a lot of uh, hunger issues out there that could be dealt with better by them. Um, it's 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 hard. You know, I wish everybody could afford to eat good produce, and they, but they can't. That seems kind of weird, right? Yeah.
1: All right, we got ten more minutes, so let's try and get as many questions. I see a few more there, as as many as we can. So next up at the mic, please.
4: Hello, I was just wondering how Waterboy got its name.
1: <laughs> and I was told it's the Waterboy, not just Waterboy, the Waterboy. The
2: either Waterboy. I'll take either. I'm really glad that the the movie The Waterboy is nobody's watching that anymore because that. That movie came out two years after we opened, and, and it was like everybody thought they were just so funny and so funny. Was like, That's with Adam hey, Sandler, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, hey, is Adam here? I was like, no, he's not here, you idiot. Like, so that, that was funny. I mean, because that's a legitimate question, right? Because it's about the goofiest name for a restaurant you could imagine. And and it really has a story because I before I opened the Waterboy, I was getting ready to take over. Um, a restaurant on K Street, which is now Trace Hermanas, but before that it was Food for Thought, and I I, I knew the owner there, and I loved I just love the feel of the place, and it used to be the old Fort Sutter Bakery, but I thought this is it. I, it's not it's kind of off the beaten path. It's in a cool part. People, it's been a restaurant before, and I was going to open a little French place and call it Rouge, and this was even before Cafe Rouge, which has already come and gone, uh, but it was just going to be Rouge, and so there was going to be red in the color, but it was going to be you know definitely a Uh, a French-inspired cafe, bistro, and I went so far as I had menus, I had menus and I had business cards and not much else. Um, I I chose a place that was going to end up needing a lot more work than I had the funds to do, so I I had my money from uh, the buyout from Paragary's, which, you know, was some money but I was trying not to spend it all on a restaurant because I have a daughter and family. And um, Well that fell through when I found out it was going to cost too much money and so that went out and over the course of the next couple of months I had already started to become very affected by a different type of place and so I was... I was eating at Olivetto a lot when Olivetto was a great restaurant. And Paul Bertolli was there, and I just decided that at this point I wanted to do a restaurant that wasn't necessarily just going to be French, and it was going to, you know, encompass all the Mediterranean places, Italy and France and Spain and all the warm, you know, because it's a lot like what we have here. You know, tomatoes grow both places equally well. and So I found the location, Americo's, which was dying and the guy who became my partner was uh Ed Brown who owned the Rubicon. So he had bought Americos two years prior to me even showing up there and he ran it on autopilot for two years and literally, literally autopilot. Like just the the staff ran its own place and he had dreams of opening the wall and making a big Rubicon. Well it's about that time other breweries opened up and he just never got to that point. So I introduced myself I did some consulting for him for about a month wrote him a whole new menu for the Rubicon and I was I was so excited about it because it was like they didn't have very good well they had food but it wasn't like what I would think they should serve so I wrote a whole new menu I was like he's gonna love it stuff. so he looked at the menu and and then nothing changed like we hit it off though but he did not want nothing changed at the Rubicon for 20 some odd years like nothing and now it's different but so anyway, for some reason, he said, "Okay, come on, be you can be my partner, do what you want." So we closed Americo's, and it needed it. Um, despite the asparagus fettuccine, it was not doing very well because. Um, so I we we I had everything. I had the concept. I had the idea for this restaurant in my head, and I had everything but the name because I wasn't going to call it Rouge because it wasn't that place anymore. And so I had nothing, and. Uh, but I used to listen to a band called the Waterboys, Irish, Irish and English, but a lot of uh, they've had a lot of different, right, but kind of a folk rock band back in the 80s. And I was listening to them one night, true story, listening to them one night, and I was like, the Waterboys, the Waterboys. So I thought, why not? And I called a friend of mine who I trusted and said, what about the Waterboy? And she's like, what? Like, I go, the and like, ah. And so anyway, we hung up, and two days later, I heard back and she said i like it and then i bounced off a couple of other people and they said same it's like what and <laughs> so <It's a> what <laughs> and then so but it, that was it and so we came up with that and uh, and then everybody asked that question and you know marcella would come back she goes you got to make something up because nobody nobody why'd you name it the water boy and I like okay and, and people were thinking where is he did he not make the team was he like the water boy and i was like it's like Whatever. So that's that's where the name came from. I named it after a a a band that I used to listen to quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, thank you so much. I've worked at the Waterboy for the last 11 years. It is truly the most magical place on earth. (laughs) I had to
2: bring my shills with me.
4: (laughs) Yeah, have, no, you been that's planting,
2: she, have you been planting
4: questions? We love We love. seriously makes me so happy to go to work every day. I never, like, I'm like, ugh, I have to go to the water, boy. I'm so excited to be there. I thank both of you very much, Patrick, too. Anytime I come to the back door with produce, these guys are always just, like, opening their arms and embracing whatever I have to sell. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Ainsley. All right. All right, Patrick, I'm waiting to see if this is someone who works for you. Let's see. But next question at the mic. Um, my husband used to work I'm over at Zinfandel Grill.
4: said my husband used to work over at Zinfandel Grill back in the day. Yeah. But no, don't work for you now. <laughs> Long. It
2: turned into the Zinfandel Grill after I left.
4: Okay. So really, I left. five yeah. degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> now, I was going to um, touch on, I think some of this has already been Brought up, but the politics of Sacramento has changed quite a bit over the last decade. Plus, we've got Select Sacramento and the Sacramento Greater Economic Council, a lot of farm to fork, the Dinner and Blanc. We've got a lot of changes that have happened in the Sacramento area, in addition to a lot of emphasis on our youth going into academia, getting a college degree. Both of you have very different backgrounds, it sounds as far as academia is concerned. What about workforce development in Sacramento? Where do you, you know, Tell kids who perhaps don't have college in the cards for them, yes, you can be successful and have a life outside of college, or even if you have the college path, you can still choose to take a path that leads you to become a restaurateur and uh, influencer and leader in the Sacramento area as things have changed and continue to change.
1: Yeah, workforce development. Patrick.
3: So, uh, one, we have uh, frequently uh, 15 to 17 year old kids coming, uh, Ginny's daughter worked for us and we scared her into Cal Poly. And then we have a second one that we scared also into Cal Poly, but we scared him so much. He became an engineer. So, so yeah, my, I grew up, my mother was a, a English teacher. My dad was a lawyer. So education was clearly valued. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a thought you know, by my mother that if you didn't have a terminal degree or a doctorate, you would somehow failed. Um, which is why it was hard for me to say at, after UC Davis that although my mother wants Dr. Mulvaney on another door, it's not going to be mine, clearly. When my mom first got divorced, though. She had uh, that library in our house where I grew up was cold, and this guy, Mr. Mush, came and fixed the library to put in some insulation. And my mom came home one afternoon, and he had all the books from the library piled up, and one of the books that he had left on the floor was the Bible that my grandfather brought from, brought from County Cork and my mother said you know Mr. Mush please be careful this is a bible it's a family heirloom that my that my grandfather brought in the late 1800s to america mr mush said i'm sorry dr Mulvaney, you know i, I know i know the the world that, that you know i've never been a good student in the world the answer to everything in the world is in books but i just never really was a good student and I, and i and i just i, I apologize i apologize so my mother said Oh, it's in books? You know, since I've been divorced, I thought that everything, the answer to everything was at a hardware store because now I just take whatever is broken and go to Canavans and say, what do I do with this? (laughs) And so my mother used to tell that story because she talked about how everyone learns differently and everyone experiences life differently, and it becomes important to be able to say for all of us that, that it's important. So you're right that workforce training, so I don't think of workforce training as less than. I think of it as more than right and be able to to get to that point and i think that our community college system is doing a great job with that and for those who make it to uc or or the state university i think that's important too but but for those right so when i came home from ireland i guess i'm getting into the gabby part of my life so i came home from ireland and i worked for leslie revson who's the first female chef at the waldorf astoria my mom came in for lunch and I remember this interchange, my Leslie went out to say, hello, you know, Eileen, so nice to meet you. Patrick's not a very good cook, but he's a lovely boy. We like having him here, you know, whatever. And my mom said something for my mother, fairly problem probably snide about, well, it's just a phase. He's going to go back to law school or become a teacher, right? And Leslie said, and I remember this because my mother would quote this as well, Eileen, I have a degree in Maca- from McAllister College in art and every day I get to do what I love with my heart, my hands, and my head. And what more can we want for our children than that they lead a fulfilled life like that? And so I think that, that our goal for all of us is try to get each in their own way, our children, to lead a fulfilled life.
1: I don't know, Rick, if you want to follow up. Wow, that's that.
2: hard. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> good. But, um, you know, I think um, we we're doing a good job of, of um, not uh, making it easy for young students and kids in elementary school and high school to work in to be geared towards working in crafts and trades anymore. We're we're doing everything we can to get rid of all that stuff, and it's all academic based. And you know, academics great if you're that kind of kid. But, you know, high school now looks nothing like high school looked like when I went there. And I, I do wish that there was more of that, um, more avenues for, like, when I learned to cook, I did it, this was before, you know, the culinary school thing, I've always had mixed feelings about, mostly not so good. There, there's always been a few that have been there and established and do a great job, and they have a great network of people that have went there, and so it, it kind of goes. It's like going to a college, a good college, and you have, you make connections. but you know there were a lot of culinary schools that came up and they were for no other reason than uh, to make money and take advantage of people and to to sell the idea that you could go to culinary school for 18 months and when you got done you'd be a chef it's like how ridiculous that is That's like so wrong and they there was a lot of lot of people out there that that just kind of did that and you know Found out that when they got out of culinary school, they were ready for an entry-level job, which started at about 13 bucks an hour. And how in the world were they going to pay that back? And also, they were never told just what a commitment it actually takes to to become a chef. Um, and so on the flip side, so when I, I think cooks need to learn how to cook by cooking. And so I think what they do in Europe, uh, and not here so much, uh, is do an apprenticeship. It's just like learning how to be an electrician. Well, how do you learn how, you know, you go work with an electrician. You work with people that know what they're doing, that bring you along, that show you. And maybe you go to work for another one who does a different type of electricity. And then you become a well-rounded electrician. Well, cooking is the same thing. And so when I got to go to San Francisco and do a, an apprenticeship program, I, Literally, it was three years, and I spent the first three months peeling potatoes, peeling carrots, shaping potatoes, shaping zucchini, uh, cutting up onions. I, that was my thing, and I was thrilled. I had three knives, and I thought this is great. I could take my knives every day and and. And, but, you know, that, then that's where it started, but that's how you learn, you know, even when you get to think while you're peeling potatoes and peeling carrots, you're thinking and you're seeing other people in the kitchen that are actually doing things that are way more interesting. And that, well, that's why I'm gonna peel these carrots as well as I can, because I want to get there. And it was just, um, I think this is how you, I, it, learning how to cook, you need to be shown. I've, I've been blessed with having some, some really good, young, talented people that have come into my kitchen and, and they just, ate it up, and I, I I, think I'm a pretty good teacher, and I think I can inspire people, and sometimes I I, I look at people and try and let them know, well, it's, you didn't choose the best thing to, like, if you wanna be a provider, and you wanna, like, vacation, and it's not, you're probably not gonna happen, but but it's a great way to make a living. It's great, and you go home, and people, you know, be proud of what you do, and I, I, I think that um, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see more programs. Uh, they they don't even do the apprenticeship program that I did anymore in San Francisco. The culinary schools came in and took all of that, all of the funding, and you know I think that's unfortunate. But
1: I yeah. have a question about American yeah. River College. I keep hearing about their culinary program.
2: The only program that I ever refer anybody to is the American River culinary seriously. Exactly. Yeah, they, outstanding. i I've, I've had. I have six people right now in my kitchen that, that went there, and uh, I, and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg, and they they have people that are, yeah, that have been doing it, that have been successful. So a lot of these culinary schools that were for pay, they were filled with with washed up cooks, the guys that got fed up. It's like oh, fuck, I'm gonna go teach because you're gonna be an awesome teacher, right? It's like you didn't even, you weren't even very good at what you did, and now you're gonna go <laughs> teach and then you're going to inspire and it's like that is not i'm not kidding that happened a lot so that's never been the case ever since the beginning of and the program out there has has gone through many changes and there been it's it's great so that's the only place that's anybody
3: and how many of how many of those students graduate that work for you because i know when that when they come into the doors at the bnl that that we let them stay for about a year and then it's like oh fuck no come on Come work with me because you'll learn faster and quicker and better. But to your point about how do we spread more education, the the reason the other besides being a great program, it's valuable because in California there's something called the California Promise, and for first time full time students, community college is tuition free. That doesn't mean it's inexpensive because it's more expensive at the end of the day out of pocket to go to community college than the state college or university after grants, but it does provide a window. Of, of hope and expectation.
4: Thank you, gentlemen.
1: All right. So we have the last question of the mic and we gotta have it a very brief short one because I think we're a little over our time. So okay.
4: I was just wondering, you guys have been in the <clears throat> industry for a long time and you've watched it grow
3: and morph. What would be your biggest or best piece of advice to someone who's young and just getting into it and wanting to buy risk. good shoes.
1: <laughs> i um, comfortable shoes comfortable
2: shoes I, w- I would just uh, ask them to 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 really ask themselves the question is like is this this what you want to do because to succeed it is, is in in this industry it's no different than success anywhere else and you it's it's going to you have to I, I always try and let people know what it takes To the best of my ability, what it takes, and it takes essentially sacrifice of your family. (laughs) It's like it's finding balance in this business is difficult, and it always will be. Um, So just make sure you want it, because there, there's still there's so much room out there for, for. People that really want to want to cook for a living or run a restaurant for a living or run a you know any be in this be in the food industry. There's a lot of room for improvement. There will always be, um, but it's always going to take somebody that is inspired and, and has the energy and really has a an understanding that it will not happen overnight. And if it does, it's like you were like lucky to win some stupid thing on the Food Network, like, yeah. <laughs> and like yeah.
1: beat Bobby Flay.
2: No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't. Bobby's a good guy. Guy
1: Fieri, isn't he an A.R.C. Graduate? You know
2: what? I have no problem with Guy Fieri. That guy is like, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't eat at his restaurants, but I think he's he's a pretty good guy. I think, you know, pretty good guy. <laughs>
1: All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off that one. I, I had one last question that I wanted to end with. For, for us amateur chefs and, and, and people who love going to eat at your restaurants but love to cook at home, um, I think you're both good at giving cooking lessons. What one skill, briefly, should we amateur chefs remember when we're in the kitchen? What should we never forget, always remember, or do more of less of?
2: If you really want to enjoy your time in the kitchen, um, have sharp knives. Nothing will make it less fun to prepare food in your kitchen if your knives are dull. I'm serious, yeah, sharp. Like, bring them to me, I'll sharpen them for you. Okay.
1: And Patrick.
3: And, and as you're cooking and you think about the idea of creativity, I think people too frequently think about creation, meaning I'm putting something together that's never been done before. And I try to teach the, the boys and girls that come in the kitchen that I think of creativity like the dance. And when the dancer comes out, and I'm not a dancer, so forgive this uh, interpretation, when you come out and put your hand out like that, that that causes an emotion to happen in your audience. And you want to do that in, in your food. And so your act of creation is cooking those things over and over and over again each time so that your dish of food, when it goes out, elicits a positive response to your customers. And to me, that's the act of creation. It's creating the feeling in the customer.
1: All right, on that note, I think um, we should all head out to the water boy and ask for a plate of we have, <laughs> we have asparagus, we have asparagus, we have asparagus. It is spring, but um, I want to say thanks to you both. <laughs> thanks to you both for coming out and talking to us. It was a great discussion, great questions to the audience, and thank you all for coming out. It was a great evening, and have a good night.
0: You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation was held on April 30th at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. Thanks goes to Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose of Antiquity Midtown for hosting this event. And to Nicole Grant Krieg and Rodrigo Ramirez for volunteering and their continued support. Our special thanks goes out to Chelsea El Cesar, Sarah Gonzalez, and Andrew Wilson for helping us put this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out what our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.